Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 111 with Dan Holland. Dan is a senior scientist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center within the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, more commonly known as NOAA. Dan is also an affiliate professor at the University of Washington, chair of the Science and Statistical Committee of the Pacific Fishery Management Council, an associate editor of Marine Resource Economics, and a former president of the International Institute for Fisheries Economics and Trade. Here, Dan talks with Michael about his work on risk pools, a form of collective-based management where fishers combine their quotas for species with the potential to constrain overall catch. They touch upon the pros and cons of the system, as well as a few examples. This is the In Common Podcast. Okay, so building on this conversation so far, I want to transition to your work on, I mean, most broadly, it's it's related to this idea of, it's still sticking with this idea of complementary or additional policies or types of institutions that are meant to address what are traditionally seen as uh, potential weaknesses of catch shares. And so that's, in a way, that's what we're already talking about. Mm-hmm. And a branch of your work has looked at a specific way to do this, which is through, which now starts to engage with a lot of the work that I do and know, which is on collective ownership and community-based resource management. One thing that's interesting, Dan, is there's there's a paper written by Jim Atchison and Jim, James Wilson a while ago called like the case for parametric resource management. And they make this argument that community-based fishers fishing systems often use more input controls than more bureaucratic centralized systems would tend to use more output controls, which I think is an interesting piece to this because input controls are, have also been a class of kind of complementary techniques to make catch shares more in line with the principles of ecosystem based management, holistic ecosystem-based management. So could you talk to me about your work on the implementation of community-based management within the context of catch shares? What were the problems that you saw motivating this? And how has the implementation of community management help address the problems that it was designed to solve? Um, okay, well, let I'm... Let me try and, and answer a slightly different question. Instead of community-based management, let me say collective management. Okay. Um, um, because I think there are fewer examples of what I would call community-based management, unless you think of community as sort of a, the community of, of you know, people that work together or something on the sea, right? Communities Got it. Of, 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 yeah. But um, I think that if you look around the world at where ITQs have been put in place, um, or catch air systems have been put in place. Almost in almost all cases, there is some type of a collective um, organization um, that is, uh, um, you know, formed essentially by the industry, um, or by the by the quota holders um, to deal with a, a variety of different issues, including kind of ecological issues like bycatch and and. Um, you know, other issues like market failures in terms of tradability that, that I talked about in terms of the, the, um, the bycatch issues or the, the um, uh, um, 
stocks that are inhibiting catch of other other stocks. Um, and so what you what you see is that in a variety of forms. So you know in Iceland maybe you see it because you have large companies that own multiple vessels, um, and so they sort of are essentially a large collective um, themselves, essentially a corporation, right? But um, in um, New Zealand, um, what you see is that uh, not in all fisheries, but in most fisheries there, you have the ITQs, and then you have a, an actual sort of um, structure set up for those quota holders to form collectives um, that can do a variety of things, um, including reduce the TAC from what it would otherwise be um, for, you know, and deal with other things. And, they, and, and the rules are such that they can if they have a majority of quota holders agree to this, um, they can they can then enforce the rest of the quota holders to go along with this. And so, um, you know, a classic example is the scallop fishery there, where they were you know, doing spatial management, rotating areas, and uh, you know, um, and so they were imposing that on themselves. There are also cases there where they've reduced the quota for market reasons or because they were. Um, well, it's complex for the various reasons why they why they may have reduced it from what it would have otherwise been, but they're but they they've done so. So, uh, and then you have cases where, uh, like on the west coast here, where you have these risk pools that were formed, which were basically to deal with these choke stocks and the, and the market failures associated with trading these these quotas. So you have these individuals join the join the uh, risk pool that doesn't really put a lot of constraints on how they use most of their quota, but um, maybe set some rules about staying out of areas where they're likely to encounter bycatch of these, these constraining species, um, and then provides them access to a pool of quota for those. So, uh, and then- Yeah, then Dan, sorry, could you- So. Can we, I know you've written about risk pools specifically. Can we, can we unpack that a little bit further? What is sure. a risk pool? Um, okay, so a risk pool is, um, you know, essentially uh, a form of insurance, I guess. Okay. Um, so um, I think it's best explained in the context of the particular example here, um, where you have uh, a, uh, a particular species or a few different species that, um, you know, have very low quotas and have the potential to constrain, but your, your likelihood of catching those is highly uncertain. So you- Those are the choke species. Never those are the choke species. So most okay. people will maybe never run into these, but if you do happen to run into some, you might catch a whole bunch. Um, and the rules are such that at that point, unless you could come up with the quota to cover that catch, you would be tied up for the rest of the season and maybe even into the next year. So it's very costly for you, but you, you don't know. So you basically then join an insurance pool um, where you and a bunch of other people pool your quota of that, of that particular species. And you say, you know, whoever, um, happens to run into this, they can draw from that pool of quota. So like all insurance products, then you have issues with that, you know, you have to control moral hazard and, um, you know, to keep people from, you, know, you want people to actually try and try and avoid the bycatch. Right. But once they're insured against it, they're more likely to do it. Yeah. If they're insured, they're more likely to do it. So that so the risk pool then will have a set of rules. They'll say, you know, we're going to say you need to fish, not fish in certain areas, or maybe we're going to we're going to keep track of where where people are catching this and 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 have rolling you know have kind of in season closures. Um, there may be you know a variety of other rules that they can come up with and they can change flexibly. I think that's sort of the beauty of of these collective arrangements um, is that 
they, the, the industry has the information to design them in a way that's effective and they can change them quickly when they need to. Whereas regulators, when they try and design these rules, they don't have enough information to design them effectively and they can't change them quickly. Okay. And I, Dan, I appreciate you um, kind of pushing back on my kind of projection of this being a community-based system. That's kind of, you're seeing where I'm coming from. And so I have a kind of representative, represented, what's the word, representativeness bias, where if I, th if I hear the word collective, I impose this idea of kind of a communitarian situation on that. And, and so we're not necessarily talking about as you said, like an organic community of folks who like live in the same town or anything like that. It's, it is a collective, but as you said, that's only a community in a sense if you actually think that people who end up having a common interest in a set of quota are a community, which certainly might not be the case. But so is it correct to think that this idea of collective, and I'm sorry if I, I'm sure I'm not using the keywords in the kind of exact right ways here, the this collective arrangement that actually then includes a lot of different that's a big bucket it seems to me it includes things like vertically integrated companies does it is that correct yeah i mean i think that that's starting to, to stretch it a little bit but it, but, okay. it, but if you think about it, um yeah i mean effectively um you know that 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 vertically integrated i guess it's, it's sort of more not maybe the vertical integration is, is less important in a sense than the horizontal in, integration right that you have a company that owns a bunch of different boats right i see and so yeah because when i first thought about like collective quota what i met the scenario i imagined dan and some of the question is how real is realistic is this scenario ever is kind of an amount of quota being collectively granted to like 20 fishers at a time. Is that a correct way to think about this? Yeah, I mean, that's one way it's done. I mean, so that is the way, for example, um, it was done for the Pollock uh, fisheries and for some, some of these Alaskan, Alaskan fisheries where you have quotas actually allocated to uh, a, a group. And that's the way the sectors are done on New England, right? So the group is allocated the quota. Um, based typically on the catch history uh, of the individuals that are part of that collective. Right, um, each sector, okay. Period of, period of time. And so that, that's used there, it's used um, for the sort of the mothership and the out, uh, and um, the, the at sea sectors basically for the whiting fishery on the west coast. Um, so that, that's one form where the, 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 the right is actually, or the quota is allocated to a group. Um, other cases, you know, the quota is allocated to individuals, but then they form contractually form uh, a collective on top of that. Um, okay, from the bottom up, then they're doing that on their own. Right. Okay. Sort of organic. Okay, so Dan, in the paper, to get really concrete here, in the paper that you wrote about this that I saw, I think it was published in 2018, you talk about how these are addressing both problems within the fishery and between the fishery, like intra versus inter. Pro, um, fishery problems. Can you, can we just get explicit here about what are the challenges within the fishery that are being addressed here, but then you really focused on what are the challenges that are being addressed by this collective arrangement between the fishery and its environment? Like, why is that distinction important and how does that play out? Well, um, I think the distinction, you know, is important. Um, although there's sort of overlap in these things. So bycatch is a good e example, I think. Um, but 
bycatch or kind of the market failures within these multi-species fisheries that we've talked about and then you know where you implement a risk pool or something uh, some kind of collective to sort of deal with that um, to, to help get the quota to, to, to who needs it and deal with the uncertainty that's sort of the in, intra fishery issue there um, that's a, a common one um, and um, you know or it may even be you know you know just simply allowing tradeability um, you know is, is an intra fishery fishery issue there to you know allowing allowing quota to, to, to move to to those who value it more um, and um, which you know maybe would it be more restricted um, in in an individual system or something um, the interfishery thing um, or sort of interstate group is where you have an externality um, that the actions of this fishery are are sort of impeding or you know are, are creating harm basically to um, other groups um, you know whether it be uh, another uh, another fishery for example so the halibut fishery you know is being impacted by a trawl fishery the trawl fishery is not actually allowed to land that halibut um, but any catch that they catch and kill um, is sort of taking away from that other fishery um, mm -hmm. and um, you know or um, or maybe they're doing habitat damage um, as well and you know that habitat damage you know they may be they might take that into consideration to some degree um, if they think it's going to to affect the sustainability of their own fishery that the quota holders in a particular fishery right they know if we completely you know denude the bottom that uh, eventually we're not going to have a fishery anymore um, on the other hand um, that might not be the case it may be that that denuding the bottom um, is actually makes it really good for flatfish and um, so or scallops or whatever it is and so they don't really have an incentive to take care of the habitat um, but so instead then the regulator would is going to impose some regulations on them so the collective may be able to say well look let us deal with this problem instead we can we can deal with it in a more effective and efficient way than you would deal with it um, as as a regulator because we have more information than you and more flexibility to do this and so you know the, the example there is up in british columbia where um, they have this trawl fishery up there it's an itq fishery they have um, you know a sort of collective organization that came up with this um, this approach um, actually which it, in the end ended up being sort of um, formalized uh, in in a sort of a habitat quota um, type um, thing so you they have now quotas for for habitat impacts essentially for sponge and coral um, uh, but that collective then in order to actually sort of reduce the impacts of that they also impose upon themselves closed areas not allowing themselves to fish in certain areas that had not you know, been fished in the past etc so um, they're basically dealing with that in order to forestall some heavy-handed um regulation that would otherwise come down um new zealand i you know you see similar examples where the industry imposed uh, upon themselves large closed areas of areas that had not been fished said we're not going to fish in these areas that have not been fished before um and then maybe the reason for doing that is because they knew if they didn't do that that then the, they were going to get imposed on them anyway and they'd have less say in, say in it okay thanks for tuning in 
The Uncommon Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod.